Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Sniper Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. I'm so tired. So many movies, not enough time. And Sydney, not in Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Yeah, Miff's pretty cool, guys. And we have joining us Melbourneite Sean Coates from Movie Babble and another bloody movie podcast. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. No worries. I echo what Chris said. Melbourne is the best. Pleasure to be on, Glenn. It's great to have you, Melbourne. Melbourne is quite nice. We're here for the Melbourne International Film Festival, Myth. It is a few days in. We have watched a lot of films. We were talking about a lot of films. It's quite fun having one of those passes. You can just jump between cinemas. They're also close around here. Yeah, that's really the benefit of Myth of a Sydney Film Festival. The equivalent of having to trek all the way to Wynyard and then catch a half an hour bus to get to Cremorne Orpheum um, from the State Theatre that you would do in Sydney is to walk like 10 minutes to go to Melbourne Central. There's so many cinemas packed in this Melbourne CBD so close to each other, it makes the festival an absolute pleasure to navigate. Yes, Melbourne, or I should say the last stand of cinephilia, essentially. You know, and most importantly, actually, the kind of crowd Melbourne attracts is also very interesting because the, the younger crowd is Melbourne. But Sydney, you can see people like over 60, the wrong side of 60, attending whatever. We obviously welcome. Okay, there would be people who've been attending the Sydney Film Festival 60 plus years. I love them. I want to be them in the, at the 120th Sydney Film Festival. So they're very welcome. No, no, I think it's great that old people are still coming out and being engaged in cinema. Like, we're not against that. It's just no. that it's, all, it's good that, to know that there's going to be another generation to become those old people, whereas in Sydney, you're not so sure about that. Is that why I'm on the show? <laughs> yes, you're our youngest, newest youngest member. But it is lovely here. We've been thoroughly enjoying Melbourne and running around and seeing so many films. We were talking about many, many films over the course of this week. But first, we want to talk briefly about a film that will be appearing in cinemas tomorrow in Sydney and everywhere else, which is on Chesil Beach, the adaptation of the Ian McEwan novel starring Shesha Ronan, Julie Watson, and the most British British person ever, Billy Howell. It is set in the 60s and takes place over a number of time periods. It is about a romance between two young people. And I found this um, an interesting but quite a frustrating film. It's staged like it is a play and set like it is a play. And there's these moments where characters stop and look off into the distance like it's the end of a first or second act. And as much as I enjoyed the performances, it is a period piece an interesting one the jumps forward in time and some and some of it which was just so static kind of rubbed me the wrong way yes it, it, it's not a good film but also Shirley Ronan seems to be doing what she did in Brooklyn but a much better film but also here I think she doesn't have much to play with and this is also a very British film and by that I don't mean you know a good film or a bad film it's a particular sort of you know boxing stereotype now where a bunch of British actors just you know, convalesce together and just act supremely British. It, it is like, you know, the, we had the in the earlier in the year the Guernsey Literary Potato Peel Society, which is also a very British film. We are having the book club, which is also going to be a very British film. Oh, tea with the Dames, don't forget. Uh, but yeah, it's like, it, it seems to be a genre unto itself, and that's maybe you know some people might like that, some people might not, and so it could be a problem. But. The other thing is, this is also an issue-based film. It's talking about sexuality, it's talking about sexual freedom, and it's not doing that particularly well, unfortunately. That is On Chesil Beach, that is in cinemas tomorrow. So we're going to be going through a number of films, including the opening night premiere of the Melbourne International Film Festival, which we caught over the weekend, Wildlife. It is the directing debut of Paul Dano, written together with Zoe Kazan, with whom he made Ruby Sparks. It is starring Australia's Ed Oxenbold, 
Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal. It is about a family in 1960 struggling to make ends meet once they move to a town in Montana and the travails they go through. This is Paul Dano's first film. I think he's a very talented actor. I would make a similar criticism that I made of On Chesil Beach and that is a very statically shot film. I found this is one of all but I think two films I've seen at the festival. They are incredibly strong. I think a little overwrought metaphors and certainly this one was no exception. Oh, you're going to start with me. Okay. Um, I liked it uh, probably a little bit more than you did. Um, you can definitely tell with this movie that uh, Paul Dano is an actor turned director because I guess in, in a way directing is kind of almost like a promotion to acting and um, the performances are definitely the highlight here and especially like Jake Gyllenhaal, Kerry Mulligan, Ed Oxenbold, they all elevate the film because I think that their characters and the actual story of the movie aren't really that interesting and that's why Paul Dano as an actor knows what he like knows what directors want out of him so him as a director knows what he wants out of his actors and that's definitely the highlight of this film um I would agree with that I think the performances are all really good I agree with something that Glenn said um to me after we saw the film which is it's not doing anything new when we've seen this kind of subject matter covered in a lot of films before and I think um this would have probably would have been more interesting if it had been updated to a contemporary setting, because I don't think the 1950s setting adds much. It remind, I think there's something about filmmakers doing these kind of arch takes on the 1950s that creates kind of like emotional remove. It reminds me of movies like Married Life, where, you know, um, unless you're going to really make the 50s milieu a part of what the film has to say, um, I, don't, I don't think there's much of a point to that. I think um, it's well-performed and held my interest well enough, but... Um, yeah, I agree. There's not a huge amount of depth. I'd like to see more of um, the collapse of the relationship. I'd like to, like to see it explored in greater depth. And I also agree with another one of Glenn's criticisms, finally, which is that the um, main character of the film is really Carrie Mulligan's character, but Ed, Ed Oxenblood is positioned you know, as the protagonist, but essentially goes through not much growth. Nonetheless, I, I, think, um, I think it's strong because of its performances and... Um, I think probably people who've gone through something similar will relate. It's a slice life film where not a lot happens. Our town, this is not. Yes. Uh, also, at the same time, while I was watching this movie, I had this epiphany that Carrie Mulligan might just be the gaslighted kind of female protagonist of our generation, kind of like the Ingrid Bergman of our generation, if you say. And I have to admit, and even so, um, I'm loath to admit this, I kind of really like seeing on screen... Horrible things happen to Carrie Mulligan. Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, don't, I don't know how to put it, you know, in a much more tactful way. But you like witness. Um, you like the. I'll try and smooth this over for you. <laughs> dig you out of this hole. Um, you like the way that she expresses inner pain. That's what I took from this too. <laughs> yes. Uh, let, let's go with that. <laughs> uh, you mentioned you had problem with the very obvious metaphors. Uh, maybe I'm just stupid, but I didn't really catch on to them, or they just didn't really bother me. So, um, what kind of like do they spoil much? Like, if you were to say what they actually kind of imply or what they were, um, I would just say that there's an incredible. For me, there was a frustrating roll credits moments where they refer oh. to wildlife and they say what the wildlife is doing and it's a it's at a junction of the film where the characters are changing their life is evolving and you think oh i kind of see where it's going so it didn't bother some of the many other metaphors but that one did get me a little and the kind of how the actual fires and what impact they have on the flora and fauna around them and where carrie mulligan explains that you know what happened what what's what are the flora and fauna called after the fire leaves they called standing dead and i'm just like you know this was too on the nose for me but at the same time 
the way the actual film is shot in terms of Paul Dano's direction, I want to give some credit to him because it's his first feature and it doesn't look like a first feature. So there's some interesting camera positions and the way it's positioned and shot is really interesting. Some really good point of view shots with Ed Oxenbolts and what he actually witnesses, which is very interesting. So there's some really interesting bits on how it's shot, though. So that was Wildlife will be in cinemas later in the year. Next one we are talking about is the perfect Friday night film or even weekend night film until we saw until we saw Body the following night, oh, which yeah. oh, next week's episode. We can't wait to speak about that. But this is Mandy the Nicholas Cage from the new basis for every Nicholas Cage GIF and meme you will see for the next ten years. He, it is essentially Nicholas Cage taking on a cult of devil worshippers and going from an ethereal, sensual film to an all-out crazy slasher gore fest. He hits Pete Cage at several moments in this there is to give you an idea there is a 12 hour Nicolas Cage marathon called the cage thon happening later this week and this is headlining that it is the fee film for people who enjoy drive angry or as someone said to me earlier today didn't think drive angry went far enough um I think it was you Chris I made some drive angry jokes about around this movie so maybe um yeah look Mandy Mandy is a strange one to talk about um it is as Glenn said a film of two halves I really admire um, the experimentation that the director, I think Panos Cosmatos is his name? Yes, that's right. Yeah, has gone to. Um, this is another acid horror movie. Uh, you know, we've got another playing at the festival, Climax, and I think this movie pulled off the LSD-inspired horror imagery much better. Um, there's a moment near the, be- the beginning of the film featuring um, sort of flickering fill lights over... Nicolas Cage and Andrea Riceborough that is just one of the most beautiful psychedelic images I've ever seen on film. I really like that um, slow-paced, ethereal first half. Um, and he goes nuts with the direction. You know, there's it's, it seems very inspired by 60s experimental filmmaking. You know, you've got lo- the same footage repeating and looping at different film speeds. You've got the frame gradually um, changing from one color to another. I liked that side of the film. I'd like to, before I ramble about what I don't like about it, I'd like to hear what the rest of you have to say. Uh, well, I think we were the only two ones to have seen uh, this film. I'm seeing it uh, later on in the festival. I'm so excited. What, what, what I would... Right, I think. Yes. What I would... I'm, I'm seeing it despite me being very hesitant towards horror films, so you can just imagine. What I would simply say about this movie is, if you're looking for a mindless, late-night, ridiculous film to watch with your mates... When it's, you know, when you've exhausted every other absurd horror film, every absurd Nicolas Cage film, this is something you can enjoy on quite a few levels, even though the plot is barely existent. Yeah, it's really an aesthetics first film. The music is another thing that I have to um, mention. It's, the, I believe, the final work by Johan Johansson, and I think it's probably his best work. It is an incredible doom metal soundtrack. Um, really, really slow, like the pacing of the film. And I did admire how the film builds this doomy horror atmosphere. You know, it's the look, in addition to 60s psychedelia with the tie into the Manson clan that this film is, is uh, obviously making. Um, it, it's also inspired by, I think, heavy metal album covers and a lot of the, this kind of devil worshipper metal rock imagery. That aspect of the film, I think, is good. Um, it builds a, actually a really oppressive atmosphere over the first half of the film. But then it turns into a, a kind of a, a light um, slasher film, let's have a romp at the drive through kind of movie. And I don't think that the transition is um, elegant enough because I found the bleakness of the first half of the movie to be really, really oppressive. Um, and this movie, 
you know, in order to justify the kill-a-thon that happens later on, it uses the old cliche of, this is kind of spoiling the movie, but, you know, you know, look, I knew about this just from the press notes, so even though it happens a long way into the film because of its slow pace, it isn't really a spoiler. It's, you know, man gets his wife killed, therefore he has to kill everyone who did it. And I don't need to see another movie with this plot line ever again in my entire life. It take, I know that this is an aesthetics first movie, but um, watching another woman dies to justify male rage movie, um, especially one that just plays it so straight, no matter how ironic it is, and let, you know, unless they're really subverting that, I do not care. And it kind of sits badly with me that this movie in the first half goes at such length into the barbaric torture of Andrea Riseborough's character and then culminates with a bunch of Nicolas Cage's funny memes like it you know a movie that doesn't seems built for a YouTube clip it just seems wrong like to um indulge in that in that kind of like darkness and but then not follow through on that so that was Mandy let's talk a great deal more about this film and many more I'm sure we will in coming weeks but uh, we have a few to get through for this episode the next one we're talking about I think is my favourite from the festival so far potentially it is Woman at War it is an Icelandic film which I guarantee you in the next 24 months will be remade as an English speaking film I guarantee you it is a hilarious comedy just well, well the Crown Critic Week and it is about an environmentalist and yoga instructor uh, no the yoga stru- instructor is her twin sister she is the uh, choir teacher she, oh yes that's I, I'm confusing a later interesting point in the film but there's a few different twists in this um, and she is an environmental militant who goes around wanting to take out some of the more heavy industrial aspects of what is ruining the beautiful Icelandic landscape I think it's a really simple thing to say that a, a film nails its lead and nails its tone but it absolutely superbly does um, one of my favourite things about it is the band the music um, it starts there's that family guy joke where um, they're doing a Star Wars parody and they're walking through the desert and suddenly you see the John Williams band and they do this and it's a recurring throughout the film and it's very incredible thing to see a family guy joke done so well and so sincerely in this sort of film yeah when i saw that i drew comparisons to birdman but they only did that at like a couple of things like and i thought early on it was with this like kind of gag would get tiresome and like but then it doesn't like it keeps going and then they do it really um when like a moment of tension or like a like a big moment is going to happen you see them out of focus like slowly come into frame out of focus in the background and you know something's just going to happen it's yeah I thought they were very well. Um, the last thing I'll say about this film is that the I, I talk sometimes about the use of symbolism in film and how it's overwrought. Um, there is a heavy piece of symbolism at the end of this film regarding some of the environmental um, challenges uh, the main character is champion, but I think it is done quite well in comparison to many of the other very heavy-handed symbolism throughout the other things I've seen at this festival. Yeah, I completely agree with you um, uh, there, Glenn. Uh, this was the first film I saw of the festival, and uh, so far is my favourite one, and yeah, one of my favourite, in my top five of the year so far. Really loved it. That is Woman at War. Hope you get some mainstream list. The next one we are talking about is The Third Murder. Yeah, this one is one of two Hirokazu Koreeda films playing at the festival. Um, interestingly enough, this one got some of the worst reviews of his career at the Venice Film Festival where it premiered last year. And uh, he followed it up with Shoplifters, also playing at the festival after playing at Sydney, which got him some of the best reviews of his career. Um, the Third Murder sees him going into a bit of unusual territory for his cinema. Instead of a family drama, it's a slow-paced um, procedural about the defense team trying to defend a, a older man who's being convicted of a murder for the second time in his life after getting off earlier on. And um, it is interesting in the structure and the way that it gradually reveals the depths of this case. And Corriere is finding a different way of getting into his 
um, regular themes about uh, some of the same themes we, we see in Shoplifters actually about what is justified in terms of morality is it what society thinks is okay or sometimes uh, going against what is legal actually justified in the long term um, but this is such a colder film than what he usually makes and I think he was a little bit too far out of his comfort zone here and uh, so it was hard to get into but um, it's still of interest because he's such a, a strong filmmaker but I agree with the consensus that it's not one of his best works and the next film we're talking about is also Chris Dogman okay so this is from Matteo Garone most famous for directing Gomorrah um, it's about a man in an Italian seaside town who runs a dog grooming business who gets harassed by a local gangster who forces him to do all manner of um, all manner of things because the, the dog man of the title, the dog groomer, believes this guy to be his friend and doesn't seem to have much other human contact in his life. And it's really the story of this guy getting pushed so far that he eventually decides to fight back. And it is actually pretty engrossing. There are little moments in there that um, stretch believability, but really make you empathize for this character, despite him in a lot of ways being quite a pathetic person in the way that he allows his life to be derailed by this bully. But ultimately, the, the ending of the movie removed a lot of the goodwill I had in the way that it kind of stretches credulity and also, I think, um, overlabors a pretty simple point that uh, it didn't require this long of a narrative to make. Nonetheless, it's a pretty engaging crime movie and character study so that was dogman the next film we're talking about is one we just saw now and which we could talk about for half an hour and i'm sure will be in cinemas shortly that is damsel it's a new film from david zellner and nathan zellner starring david zellner as well as robert pattinson and mia wasikowska it is a film set in the west the old west where robert pattinson's cowboy of sorts um enlists the help of a preacher played by david zellner to rescue his damsel who is mia wasikowska and who appears later in the film uh, i can count the things i liked about this film on one hand, I did enjoy all those things, but as overall, I felt this film was very poorly staged. It has, it should have ended after the second act, which should have been the final act. My biggest frustration with the film is that um, David Zellner, who is the director, is very poorly cast in his own film. Um, think of the Michael Fassbender film from a few years ago, Slow West, meets the great Harrison Ford film from, I think, about 1980 with Gene Wilder, The Frisco Kid, except none of the jokes handled nearly as well. It is a... And yes, we all saw it together, and I'd love to hear what the panel think of it. Uh, I think I liked it a bit more than you guys did. Um, Yeah, so it was a bit weird. It took me a while to get into this one. Uh, The first 15 minutes is incredibly slow, and it took me a lot longer than I'm proud of to realise that the pastor was the same person as the the character you see in the opening. Festivals do this to us. Like, I I was going through a crisis during Sydney Film Festival because I kept having to go, hang on, what's this? Hang on, what what just happened here? Um, And I started to think, am I just dumb or bad at watching movies? No, when you watch so many movies in a day, your ability to process information and maintain your concentration goes down a little bit. So I think you can forgive yourself for this one, Sean. I saw Win at War and Cold War on the same day, and they're very different, but still, just, yeah, it's a little... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so the movie kind of starts out as this, like, weird kind of buddy road movie with this pastor and Robert Pattinson's character character like because it starts out it, it, you don't find out that it's the kidnapping until a little bit later on in the film and then it, this about halfway through there's this odd this really big plot turn and the the result of that the immediate result of that the first about 15 20 minutes I wasn't really a fan of I think there's even a line in the film where one of the characters says where do we go from here and I was like yes exactly and I, I kind of enjoyed more the second half though uh, this is easily and quite simply the worst film from the festival circuit. Uh, 
replacing Tower of Bright Day. So in a way, you know, congratulations, Tower of Bright Day. You're no longer on the bottom of my, wow. you know, dog pile. I still think that was worse. I agree. Tower was worse. Uh, okay. You know, but, uh, you know, this put me in a lot of distress. Uh, so I was a damsel in this movie. Uh, sorry. Virat, Virat, Virat is bitter that I, I pipped his damsel pun on Twitter, so he has to keep repeating. <laughs> Miff is all about the, the competition for the snarkiest tweets after every movie. Yeah, you heard it here. But then you don't appear on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> look, 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 okay. I'm, I'm trying to rationalize it and trying to somehow put my snark into some kind of sensibility. But, okay, the problem is... This movie doesn't have any kind of narrative momentum. It doesn't know what to do. You know, this is a movie which is actually pointless. Like, this movie could not exist, and everything would still be the same. The world would still go around as it did. You know, this adds nothing to this cinephile discourse. Okay, to, on this point of the lack of momentum, it's going for an episodic kind of structure where, um, you know, there's, there's some twists and then, uh, you know, as Sean said, we don't know where we go next, and the movie throws, you know, different new characters for... Um, the characters to, you know, engage with and throw out the scenario, see how they react. The problem is, once you realize what this film is about and what it's trying to do with, it, with its subversion of the Western, the way that all of these episodic encounters are going to play out becomes very obvious. So I think there's not enough dramatic interest. And on top of that, the characters aren't interesting. So if there was some kind of interest and engagement with the psychology of the characters we'd watched, then that would be what pulls you through the lack of momentum that would maintain some kind of interest but because there isn't the movie just seems to stop dead and stumble around and just keep going on top of that it's not funny and on top um, and as a, a comedy that's a problem and on top of that this is such a cheap looking movie probably one of the least visually interesting westerns ever made why even make a western if you've got no visual ideas it's all about the iconography right and the sc- well, that disappointed me as well because I found out in the credits that this was um, photographed by a really good cinematographer, Adam Stone, who works a lot with one of my favourite directors, uh, Jeff Nichols. So, yeah, I, I didn't find it as bad as you as you did, but like, I guess hearing you guys talk about it, maybe you'll think I'm stupid or something. But not on the sli- not on the slightest. No, it, look, the, the script. I I, think I will defend the film on one point in that it did subvert expectations well with regards to Robert Pattinson, who played a character who isn't his archetypal character. The script for me left so much wanting. Some of the transitions between scenes was so awkward. Yeah, I, I will think that um uh, that Mia was a character. Oscar is quite good in this movie. Like, I haven't really been a fan of hers, but to bring up one of the patron saints of uh, your uh, show, David Lynch, I've kind of felt like her career is just... She, she only has a career because of the, uh, the mafia guys in Mulholland Drive, like walking into every you know, Hollywood, to Hollywood executive with a picture of her saying, This is the girl. This is the girl. That was a good Lynch reference. We could have gone an episode without, if not for that. We could go many episodes without Lynch references. Thank you. It's the only Lynch film I've seen. Okay. Well, you've got some treasure to, to dig up, like Kimiko, the uh, star of the first film. No, it's not the first film, the previous film from the Zellners. But no, um, don't think you're stupid for liking the movie. Like on, on the way over to this movie on the tram, someone told us that Three Faces, um, me and Virat's favorite movie of the year, maybe, it was just uh, absolutely terrible. Um, you know, and most people I've been talking to don't like it that much. We've got to, you've got to stick up for your oddball opinions, man. Yes. So the next film... But also, just a little quick comparison to Slow West, which I really liked that Glenn brought up, because that was a movie that I actually really did like. And it's in a similar tone, and stylistically, in terms of the narrative, does a very similar thing that Damsel is going for, and yet that movie actually was funny. This movie just, like, 
I was, and people were laughing in this theater, and I don't know who, what their sense of humor is like, but they really need to improve on that because it was not a funny film. Yeah, a lot of, uh, I will agree that a lot of the comedy didn't land, and some of the funniest parts were, were the like, more physical moments, and I actually went up to the director and asked about a, a specific moment in this film, which was a nice piece of physical comedy, and it was actually completely unintentional, and they just kind of left it in the film. But then also just thinking back, because I mentioned Jeff Nichols, uh, I would have, like, if this was a straight drama and they took out all the comedy, and if he had directed it, like, he, a lot of his films take place in, like, you know, the... the Showing new sort of sides in like the American South, I think it would have been would have been a whole lot better. Oh, and there were other unintentional moments we learned from the Q and A was the moose rocking up, which was some of the nicer landscape shots. All the best bits of this film were unintentional. That is damsel, may or may not be in cinemas. Um, maybe one to. I, re- I reckon you're going to have to go to iTunes to see that. Yeah, unless there's like still really strong Twilight following or watch come up any night of things. So um, that may or may not be in cinemas. Next one we are talking about is the new Ascar. Ascar Fahadi film everybody knows, which is his first Spanish language film from the direct- Iranian director of a separation, starring Penelope Cruz and Yavi Bardem. It is about the kidnapping of a child and the resultant effects it has on the family members and the extended friends and family. Um, what I would say about this film is I'm very impressed that Fahadi has made a straight thriller, which is powerful two reasons one because of the extraordinary performances from real life couple Yavi Bardem and Penelope Cruz playing former lovers in this film but also because um, similar to A Separation a well not a politically charged conclusion a simple and elegant conclusion which works well the film is ultimately recommended on the talent of its leads there's a lot of concern as to whether he would be able to create a good film in this context I feel he certainly has done a continued good momentum going into the future that is everybody knows and I'm sure it will be in cinemas um, in the near future the next one we are talking about is The Eyes of Orson Welles Oh my god. Just like this was so so yeah. I mean exhausting. Exhausting is the word for it. Uh it's directed by Mark Cousins and uh his narration some people might be the strongest bit about it, but also for me it was the personally most jarring thing about the entire film, which took away from my experience of actually enjoying the movie because actually I thought there was some really interesting content in this film which I felt was difficult to engage with because of the narration. That's exactly how I felt. I think um, Cousins pulls out some of the tricks he does in the story of film and Odyssey showing visual evolution. The theme of this movie is looking at Orson Welles' uh, drawings and then tracing the link um, to aspects of his personal life as well as his and especially his filmmaking and looking at his filmmaking in purely visual terms. I think this is a really interesting idea and I think at times it pays off but man, it is hard to sit through listening to this hero worship of Orson Welles addressed directly in Mark Cousins' thick Scottish accent saying, Orson, did you notice that I, you know, that I noticed this about you, Orson? Like, okay, it's not because it's, it's, he's Scottish, it's because he's insufferable. And the movie loses momentum and just goes on and on and on at the end. I think it would have been way better if it was an hour-long TV documentary making his, his pretty simple and um, surface-level observations about what Orson Welles was all about in brief. Uh, talking about discontextualizing the insufferableness of this kind of, you know, narrative style, uh, Mark Cousins basically uses first-person dialogue t- to say Orson every time, and I feel like there should be a drinking game about the number of times Mark Cousins says Orson in his, t- like, Orson Welles is some kind of old buddy. Yeah, yeah. So that is The Eyes of Orson Welles. Next film is Good Luck. Good Luck is an avant-garde documentary by Ben Russell about um, miners in Serbia as well as in Africa and Surinata, um, coal miners in the first half and uh, gold miners in the second half. 
it is pretty much all done in long takes with very little dialogue. Um, I think the intent of this movie is to really place you in that environment and show the toils and the sacrifice that people make for money and how we're all essentially a slave to it. Um, it's really an experiential documentary that makes beautiful use of color, but I think the second half isn't as strong as the first half. I still recommend it if you ever get a chance to see this because it's a really unique and interesting film with absolutely beautiful photography, but you really have to be ready for it because it's two and a half hours of long, silent takes. And we've spoken about Climax on the show, show before, but Sean, you just saw it. What did you think of the Gaspar Noah's? I don't know how to phrase this, what, what genre this film is. Uh, neither do I. Um, this is the first Gaspar Noah film I've seen, and I will just say about this that um, the, or anything that has to do with the dancing, the choreography, or like, I think this is a technically masterful film. It's so well made. All of the long tracking shots are absolutely beautiful. I pretty much hated everything else about this film. I found it kind of utterly repulsive. There was two kinds of um, ways that I was doing in this film. It was th- there was two kind of reactions I had. One of them was, "Oh my god, this is still going." This like, th- but then there was another one that was just, "Oh my god, this is still going." Like that entire sequence where they're all just talking about like their their sex lives and like all this. It's just it went on for so long. I'm like, "Oh my god," and these people are just so terrible as well. And there's only just so much of people, you know, trying to eventually kill each other and you know try to have sex with each other and like yeah roll around on the floor yeah until that just becomes really really tiresome and really repetitive so we're talking about is Asako 1 and 2 yeah I absolutely agree with you about Climax by the way oh my god some kind of drama is happening in in the place we're recording Um, Asako 1 and 2 is the new film from Ryusuke Hamaguchi who directed Happy Hour um, the five hour film that made some waves on the festival circuit a few years ago this one's a lot shorter at less than two hours Um, Asuka 1 and 2 I thought was absolutely fantastic Um, this is a really perfect rom-com for its first half with a lot of warmth for its characters and a a quirky light kind of sensibility but it builds your connection to them and reveals a lot of depth but then takes a dark turn Um, I think this movie is really one that asks you to think about the relationships you've had in your life and what is, where does our love come from? How selfless is it really? And what's most important to us? Um, and it could have been a, a perfect rom-com if that's all that Hamaguchi wanted to do, but he takes it further. I think this is one of the best films of the year. So that is Saka 1 and 2. I will be coming back next week with Sean as well, talking about the International Film Festival. I think there are tickets still available to many, many films. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. And you can catch Sean on Movie Babble and another bloody movie podcast. Yeah, subscribe to it on iTunes. Glenn will be featured in one of the episodes soon, so get around listen to it. Oh, yes, it was quite fun. Oh, we just came out of wildlife then. But, yes, we were talking. This has been Glenn Falconstein, Chris Evans, Fratton, the Rude, Sean Coates. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Enjoy Melbourne. Good night.